And then we get to the book of Jeremiah. If you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, he, he had it pretty rough. He was preaching to a people who were unfaithful, like that wife in the first picture. And so when we read our, our text for today, keep that in mind, that setting in mind, but also hear God's grace amidst all this unfaithfulness. We read from Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The Word of the Lord. There's a couple things that I, I want to point out in this text. And the first thing that we've got to talk about is a covenant. I had mentioned it a little bit at the beginning when we are talking about a marriage where you make a promise to one another. That's a covenant. A, a promise or an agreement between two parties. It basically, it comes down to this. This promise, this agreement between two parties, the integrity of the whole covenant depends on both sides, right? If you and I are in a covenant together and I'm unfaithful in my covenant, the integrity of the covenant is compromised. It's no good anymore. And on top of that, covenants were a serious thing. It wasn't like maybe the promises that we have today. This, this covenant was serious. And you could see that just by the way that they initiated this covenant. If you and I were going to make a covenant together, I would bring some of my animals. You would bring some of your animals. And then we would make our, our agreement, our covenant. And then we would cut those animals in half. And we'd place one half of the animal on this side, one half of the animal on this side. And you would do the same to your animals. We'd line them up and we'd make an aisle here. And then after we made our covenant, we'd walk through the middle of that aisle. And here's what it was saying. Here's what this practice was saying. It was saying, if I break my end of the covenant with you, let that happen to me. Let me be cut in half. That's how serious the Israelites took covenants. So keep that in mind when we're talking about that today. During the time of Moses in Exodus, God made a covenant with his people. Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert and they came to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and is talking to God and he receives from God this book of the covenant. So he brings the book of the covenant down to the Israelites and he reads it to them. And they must, have they must have liked what they heard because they responded and they said, we will do everything the Lord has says, said. We will 
obey. So Moses, to seal this covenant, he sacrificed a bull. And then he took the blood of the bull and he sprinkled it on the people. And in this way, the covenant was sealed with blood. This, this promise, this covenant was simple. Obey God, obey his law. There was nothing complicated about it. But Israel was unfaithful again and again and again. They didn't just chase after one other God. They chased after all these other gods and they were unfaithful to him. For from the time of Moses to the time of Jeremiah is nearly a thousand years. Just shy of a thousand years. And they were unfaithful through that entire time. God was patient with them up until the time of Jeremiah. But then Jeremiah was around in around 600 B.C. Just before God's patience ran out and he sent them into captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah had a tough crowd to preach to. His basic message was, repent, come back to God. I'm imploring you, come back to him. Remember the covenant that you made with him. But the Israelites hadn't kept their end of the covenant. And more than that, they didn't even remember the covenant. They were living life like this covenant never even existed. And Jeremiah's message was falling on deaf ears. I'm willing to bet that you have felt that way before. You felt like Jeremiah before. I don't know what your experience with Christianity is. Maybe you're a new Christian and maybe you've studied the Bible your entire life. But if you know a little bit about what's written in the Bible, you know that God's laws, they're good. And if people follow God's laws, they would have a pretty decent life. But the law is just a framework. It's just a framework for a good life. And honestly, would you trust your own message? Why should the world trust your message when you're just as adulterous to God as the Israelites were? Would you trust a marriage counselor's advice if you knew that he was cheating on his wife? I wouldn't. So why should the world trust your message? Because you're committing adultery to God. You know that's what you're doing every time that you sin? You're telling God that my way is better than your way. You're setting yourself up as God and saying, I get to choose what I want to obey and what I don't want to obey, regardless of what it says in the Word. God doesn't deserve to be treated like that. That's harsh. And it's harsh because I could preach the same message to myself, and I do. I convict my heart. I know that I'm guilty of all those things. God knows your adultery to Him. God knows my adultery. He knew the Israelites' adultery. But He didn't choose to divorce us forever. He chose to do something incredible instead. Jeremiah talks about a new covenant that God would make. He made a new covenant with these people who had been unfaithful to him. He says, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This covenant would be completely different. The first covenant, remember we talked about, it was a two-sided covenant. The integrity of the covenant depended on both sides. But this covenant, this new covenant, would be a one-sided covenant dependent only on God. The covenant was this, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. And that covenant wouldn't be broken because it was dependent on God who is true, who is faithful, and will always keep His promise. And that covenant, that new covenant, would be better by far. Remember when we talked about Moses sprinkling the blood of the bull on the people? Well, this was a new covenant, and new blood was needed for this covenant, but it wasn't going to be the blood of a covenant bull. This blood had to come from the perfect sacrifice. This blood could only come from Jesus. That's the picture. Jesus' blood sprinkled on you. You have been washed in Jesus' blood. John said in his epistle, the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. What that means is that broken relationship that existed between you and God, it's been repaired. Despite your unfaithfulness, despite your adultery to God, by that blood, you are forgiven. And more than that, by that blood, He doesn't even remember your sins anymore. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's grace. It's found totally and completely in Jesus. We heard it in our Gospel lesson for today, didn't we? Jesus talking to Nicodemus. The passage that many people have called the, the heart of the Bible. John 3.16. Why, why don't we say it from memory? Why don't you recite it with me? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you're ever questioning what, your stat, what the status of your relationship with God is, it's perfect because of Jesus. You have perfect harmony with your God in a beautiful marriage because of Jesus. Despite your unfaithfulness, God has forgiven your sins and He doesn't remember them anymore. So at the beginning, I talked about two relationships. We've only gone through one so far. The second relationship is somewhat similar to the first, but there's little difference. This was between a husband and a wife who stood before the same altar and made the same promises to one another, made the same covenant to one another. But the wife was unfaithful to her husband. But this time it was different. It was different than the first relationship because the wife, although she was unfaithful, she recognized that she was unfaithful. She knew that she had betrayed her husband and it tore her up. She wanted to do anything she could to right this relationship. 
And she tried just about everything she could. But no matter how much she did, or no matter what she did, she could never get her husband to accept her back. And that left her feeling hopeless. That relationship is also a picture. It's a picture of the relationship that existed between God and Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther, he loved God, but he knew that he was sinful. He knew that he committed adultery against God. And he felt the full weight of his betrayal. And he tried just about everything to bridge that gap between him and God. You know, when he was a monk at the monastery, he spent more time in confession than most of the guys there. Some days, he would even spend six hours just in one day confessing his sins. He wasn't going to leave one sin unconfessed. He would beat himself and starve himself over his sin because he felt so bad about it. But no matter what he did, there always seemed to be this big chasm that was fixed, this big separation that was fixed between him and God, and it left him feeling hopeless. It's the hopelessness that comes from knowing that something's not right here. Maybe you've felt that in your life before. I know I have. Sometime when I've made someone angry by something I did or something I said, the next time I saw them, I could just feel the awkwardness between us. I could feel the sense of disapproval on their part, and it was uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable that it makes you either want to run away from that relationship altogether or do whatever you can to fix it as quickly as you can. That's where Martin Luther was at. But the thing is, is that he didn't have to think this way. In fact, Martin Luther's way of thinking at this time and the, the church's way of thinking at this time was out of date. They were essentially going back to that old covenant with God that made a requirement of obedience. You had to hold up your end of the deal. It seems so illogical to me that between the new covenant and the old covenant, they would choose the old because the It doesn't make sense. The new is better by far. (laughs) But they chose to cling to the old covenant. It's hard for me to see where they're coming from. And maybe it's hard for you to see where they're coming from too. But let's pause. Let's examine our own hearts and, and think about that for a second in our own lives. We as human beings and as a society as a whole, we love to earn what we have. You're taught that from little on, right? The value of a dollar, earning what you have, being pri- having pride in what you are able to earn and, and having respect. You have more respect for the things that you earn, don't you, than the things that you're given? It's a good thing. It's a good thing for society to value hard work, and to earn a living. But unfortunately, that mode of thinking is also carried over to their thinking about God and their beliefs about God. And on top of all of that, we have this 
desire deep in our hearts to do something to please God, to earn God's favor. The, the ancient theologians gave this a name. It was a Latin term. They called it the opinio legis. It basically just meant the opinion of the law or the law within. There's this inward desire for me to do something to earn God's favor. That's hard for me to admit. It goes against everything that we've been taught as Lutherans about grace alone, but I can see it in my life. I can see uh, the times that I have done good works thinking that God's given me points, that I'm racking up points in heaven. That's despising God's grace. But maybe you're not convinced yet. Maybe you're not convinced that this is something that you do. But let me present you with two different scenarios. Think about the last time that something bad happened in your life. Have you ever thought when something bad has happened that God was punishing you for something, that this was God's retribution uh, on this evil thing that you had done in the past? You know, it's pretty common for, for us to do that. We attach the thing that we feel most guilty about to something bad that happened and think cause and effect. But what this is doing is this is saying that God's grace hadn't already wiped this sin out. God's grace has already forgiven that sin. Or how about this one? Have you been caught in a sin before, either by someone else or maybe your own conscience that convicted you? And you knew it was a sin. You knew it was wrong. You felt bad about it. But you, you tried to soften it a little bit. You tried to make it seem less bad. Rationalize it. As if God's grace wasn't big enough to wipe that sin out in the first place. This grace puts your works in a whole new place. Jeremiah says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Here's what it means. It means that good works, they're not something that you're doing for God. They're something you're doing because of God's grace. You don't deserve a lick of God's grace. But that's the very definition of grace. It's God's undeserved love poured out on you. That grace that wells up in your soul and creates faith in your heart. That grace that wells up in your soul and sustains you through life and renews your spirit and allows you to live out your faith. When Luther realized this, his life changed forever. You know, I I think a lot of people think that Martin Luther maybe had this one moment and then he was a super Christian. But really, it was God's grace working on Luther through his entire life. It was God's grace that brought him to faith, carried him through, and brought him to heaven. And it's the same for you. God's grace poured out on you. That's what Jeremiah means when he says, No longer will they teach their neighbor 
or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Grace got you in. Grace carries you through. And grace carries you out. I heard a story about a little girl the other day. And she was being told by her mom about her baptism. She, she was too young to remember her baptism, but now her mom was telling her about it. And she was so filled with joy about her baptism that she said to her mom, Jesus saved me! <laughs> and her mom had to text that to her grandpa. and That's how I heard about it. That, that's, that little girl, she knew the Lord. She knew the Lord's grace. And that grace created faith in her heart. My wife, Christina's grandpa, just about an hour and a half before he died, he looked and he turned to his wife and he said, I'm ready to go to heaven. And she respond, his wife responded and said, you go see Jesus, Jerry. Go ahead. That same grace that created faith in that little child is the same grace that created faith in his heart. It was the same grace that carried him through his entire life. And that same grace that gave him the confidence to say, I'm ready to go to heaven because he knew that God would take him there. Those two marriage relationships that I talked about, they don't have to be your marriage relationship with God. Your marriage relationship with God could look something like this. God giving you grace in abundance and blessing. God loves you so much. And you love Him. And you love hearing from Him in His Word. And every time you read that Word, you immerse yourself in His grace and that grace fills you up. And sure, from time to time, you'll sin. But this relationship is different than the relationships of the past. This relationship is built on grace and forgiveness because you've been washed in the blood of Christ. Your life can be filled with peace, hope, and harmony with God, knowing that your relationship is right with God. Isn't that the kind of marriage you want? That's the kind of marriage you have in Christ. God loves being married to you. Cherish it. Enjoy it. Love being married to Him too. Amen.